Good morning, church family. I am in a good mood today. Man. For a few reasons. One, Jesus. Right? Come on. I'm going to give you reason number three. I'm going to skip number two. I'm going to tell you number three. There's a verse in the Bible that says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Who was here last Sunday? Raise your hand. Anybody remember the ringtone? Let's just say a father's children, his children ratted him out. <laughs> I'll just, I won't say it, but it does this a lot up north. Snows. Just, <laughs> just so, you, so you know. All right. Um, I told you, I told you, you owe me. Um, all right, let's just go to a John chapter 7. If you got a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to John 7. We're going to look specifically at a few verses, but what I want to do is I'm going to read John 7, 37 through 44. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And he said this about the spirit. And those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit, for the spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When some of the crowd heard these words, they said, this truly is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. As I was prepping and praying through this message, I was caught up in nostalgia. And as I was thinking about this word thirst, a certain um, advertising campaign popped through my head. And I want to see if any of you remember these commercials. So let's hit this. Grant Hill has special Brazilian rubber on his shoes, which makes him jump 12 feet high. His head is aerodynamically shaped, you know. Now he's so fast, he can pass the ball to himself. I heard every time Grant Hill drinks Sprite, he's not thirsty anymore. Anybody remember that? Man, they were so, I was, having a, I was having a fun time. I was like, I need to actually write the sermon instead of watching all of these commercials. Image is nothing. Thirst is everything. Obey your thirst. In 1994, Sprint launched his marketing campaign, specifically targeted to my generation, Gen Xers. And it, it had this unique mode of advertising um, that was absolutely refreshing, no pun intended. It focused on a deconstructive parody of the materialistic culture of contemporary advertising that, would, that Sprite would then express that, hey, if you drink Sprite, it's not going to make you cool. It's not going to make you famous or give you superpowers, but it will quench your thirst. So Sprite's commercials like, were just like poking fun at all of the hard sell tactics while focusing on one big supremacist. Sprite 
won't make you more popular. It won't make you more beautiful. It won't make you an NBA superstar, but it will quench your thirst. They were speaking to a generation that was weary of being sold products with big hype and big hope and big empty promises. So Sprite just tapped into the cultural sentiment with a trust your instincts kind of concept. If you are thirsty, go obey your thirst. Go find that which will quench your thirst. And by the way, it's Sprite. Right? And then it'd be good. But the irony is, like, they were guilty of employing the same tactics as other marketing campaigns. They were appealing to your thirst. Think about it. Think of all of the slogans, okay? Let's have a little fun. Just do it. Okay? Have it your way. Let's listen to the message. If you win, let's just say you win a championship, and back in the day, they would say, what are you going to do now? And what would they say? Oh, what's the slogan of Disneyland? The happiest place on earth. Right? A diamond is forever. Selling the hope. Like, here's intimacy. Here's how you get it. Right? Save money, live better. Walmart. Oh, this one. The best a man can get. Gillette. Right? <laughs> I'm loving it. McDonald's breakfast of champions. Open happiness. Coke. Because you're worth it, L'Oreal. <laughs> what happens here? Like, think about it. They're all of these things, they're marketing, they're appealing to your thirst. Obey your thirst. All of them, they're trying to get you, to lure you, to make you come to them. But what really this is doing is revealing a universal truth of all time. We are thirsty people, and nothing here on earth has ever appeared to have quenched that thirst. No product, no new innovation, no new tech, no investment, no new properties, no government, no new dating app, no clothing line, nothing, in fact, will ever, ever quench that thirst. We, in fact, we are so thirsty that we've become easily convinced. We're easy pickings for them because we're so incredibly thirsty that if we went with this choice or went into this relationship and got that job or made this decision and had that thing and the grass was greener over here and we did this, like finally our thirst would be quenched. But the reality is there is nothing on earth that will ever fully or finally satisfy that thirst. Nothing. So let's just think about this now. Like, when you are thirsty, not like literally, okay? When you are literally thirsty, like, like dehydrated thirsty, like parched, your lips are being chapped, like you've been outside in Austin too long this summer, kind of thirsty, like doesn't like your standards actually begin to lower a little bit to what you want to relieve that thirst? Like you actually become convinced that like, hey, this dirty water isn't that bad. It's because you're like so desperate, you're so thirsty. So I have a profound statement. This is what four years of an MDiv got me right here. Thirsty people look for something. Thank you, thank you. They look for something, eventually anything, 
in order to quench their thirst. Sprite was actually onto something, but they didn't know it. Thirst is everything. Obey your thirst. But with what? That's the question. Now, let's just think about literal liquids for a moment in our human body. Water is our primal desire. It is a primary desire. Like, water is what the body needs in order to really quench our thirst and for our bodies to actually function as it was designed to. Did you know that your body is 60, roughly about 60% water? Water forms the basis of blood. It is vital for other organs to function right. We need water so that we can perspire, so we can cool and re- our bodies and regulate our temperatures. Water actually affects your metabolism. It lubricates and cushions joints. It aids in keeping you healthy, reducing the risk of certain disease. It carries nutrients and oxygen to your cells. You can go without food for weeks, but you can only go a few days without water. So here's the question. If water is really our primal and primary desire for ourselves to quench our thirst, why? Why do we try to quench our thirst with things like Sprite or Coke or other things? Like, yeah, sure, there's water in them, but they actually don't really quench our thirst. In fact, they're not even that good for our bodies because there are other things in them that are actually unhealthy for us. So here's a question. You didn't know you were in school today, but here we go. Did you, do you know why you feel thirsty? This, one, this one's simple. Because your brain is warning you that you're dehydrated and your body is lacking enough water. God created us with that kind of system. You're redlining, you're thirsty, meaning you're dehydrated. You don't have enough water in you. So drink. Do you know why it feels good to drink a nice glass of cold water when thirsty? Like, you know, you ever have this, like when you take a drink of cold water, you like actually feel it. You're like, whoa. (laughs) And then you do it again. You're like, oh, that wasn't there anymore. Like, why, why does it feel good? Did you know that God actually hardwired our brains to accept like as it were, I'm being metaphorical, you're like, our brains like accept water as if we're giving it a gift. And it says thank you in the form of releasing dopamine in our brains, which is what makes us happy and feel pleasure. Did you know that? I mean, that's, <laughs> you're smart. I had to look it up. Do you know why you're always thirsty? Like, do you know why like you, you like eventually get thirsty over and over and over? Because you can't store water. You have to replenish the water that you use every single day. Do you know why your thirst, your desires are never fully and finally satisfied with anything here on earth? Like, think about this. Do you know why enough is never enough? If I only had this much money. Okay, great. You know what what research tells us when people finally get that mystical number of money? You know what they want? more. And then they get that. You know what they want? More. That's with everything. You can do that with drugs. You can do that with alcohol. You can do that with intimacy, relationships, whatever it is, approval, recognition, intimacy. Like, it's always more because we are never fully and finally satisfied with anything here on earth. And so nothing really quenches our thirst here on earth. Jeremiah 2, 13 reminds us beautifully. It's like God saying, listen, pay attention. 
our, my people, which is really, in a lot of words, we do the same thing. We've forgotten him who's the fount of living water, and we build or dig our own cisterns, which are broken, which means they cannot hold water. Sure, you drink Coke when you are parched. It will relieve you for a moment, but it will not quench your thirst. So yeah, you may have that one night stand, and it may have done something to you and for you that night, but the next morning, you're thirsty. You may have gotten that raise, Thirsty, like you know what I'm saying? It's like you get something, but then it leaves you still thirsting. God is trying to communicate something beautiful to us. So I'm gonna give you 30 seconds. I want you to answer this question honestly. I want you to fill in this blank. Don't no Sunday school answers allowed unless it's true. What would you put in this blank? My soul thirst for blank. Stop. That's a Sunday school answer, unless it's true. Right now, what are you believing that if you had it, or if you achieved it, or if it changed, it would quench your thirst? What is it? Okay, we're going to go around the room. I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, I know as a pastor, I don't have the element of surprise, right? Because I know you already think you have an idea as to what I'm going to say, which is perfectly okay. But I, I want to ask you if you would allow God this morning to have a space in your heart like, allow him to show you his son, Jesus. Allow me to come in and, like, show you the beauty of Jesus and so that you understand how vital it is to know him and to understand him. But more than that, to see his passion and the importance of the Holy Spirit, which is the streams of living water that he wants to place inside of us. And that's why we need to look at John 7, okay? And so here's what I want us to do before we go there. I want you right now, I'm not going to do this for you. I want you to do this. And I, I want everybody to do this. If you believe in Jesus or don't believe in Jesus, I want you to do this. Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the love of Christ this morning. And if you're not a believer, I want to challenge you to do it. Even if you feel foolish, it's okay. Just ask, Holy Spirit, would you show me, reveal to me the love of Jesus? Verse 1 of chapter 7. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of the shelters was near, so his brother said to him, Leave here, go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, Jesus. Parentheses. For not even his brothers believed in him. This is fascinating. 
You see, you see, Jesus has a profound effect on everyone. You cannot meet Jesus. You cannot think about Jesus and not be affected one way or the other. He's the only person on this earth. He's the only person in human history that has this profound effect. It's like he carries with him always the fork in the road moment. He doesn't leave it in this like open-ended space like because he is the embodiment of truth. He's the embodiment of grace and mercy and holiness. And, and like it, it, when you encounter him or when you think of him, it's either going to stir up like good things inside of you, like curiosity where you want to know more and, and want him more, or it's going to simply kind of repulse you and make you angry. And that's scriptural. Paul even says that like we're the aroma of Christ. Like, the church is the aroma of Christ. And to some, it's the fragrance of life. But to others, it's the stench of death. Like, you can't encounter Jesus and not be affected. And that's what we're going to see all through chapter 7, is that we're going to see different types of people and their interactions with Jesus and the effect that happens to them. I mean, over and over and over, like right away we see he stayed in Galilee because the Jews, which is John's way of saying the Pharisees, who were the cultural gatekeepers of Israel at the time, wanted to kill Jesus. So they hated him. And then we see a little bit later, there are people who are like, you know, debating who he is. Oh, he's a good man. He's a good moral man. And some people are like, no, he's dangerous. He's deceptive. Some people would say he's demonically oppressed. He thinks people are trying to kill him, but no one's here trying to kill him. They're trying to figure out how does this guy know how to teach like this? He didn't get discipled by one of our two main rabbis. Where is he from? We know where he's from. He's from Bethlehem. He's from Galilee. How can he be saying? In these things. Some are like, maybe he is. Do the Pharisee know something about him that we don't know? And some are like, okay, there's something different. He's the prophet. But yet others were like, no, he is the Messiah. And then the Pharisees come in and be like, are you so stupid to believe in this? None of us believe in him, so why should you? Every single person that encounters Jesus is affected by him. One way or the other, and I love that John gives us this conversation with his brothers because we don't think about that, that Jesus actually had siblings, right? Because we just go, well, you know, born of a virgin, he's the only child. But no, he had stepbrothers or half-brothers or however that worked. I don't know. But he had family. And, and like, this is fascinating. Imagine this. Growing up as Jesus' younger brother, you want to talk about pressure, I mean, like, seriously, do you think maybe, like, the brothers, James, who wrote the, the epistle of James is one of Jesus' siblings, maybe he, like, overheard Mary and Joseph talking one day that, you know, Jesus was born, and, you know, the Holy Spirit, and they're like, oh, mom's favorite. Like, you know, like, feeling all that tension. Do you imagine, like, yes, Jesus, we know you're special, you're good, you're great. We hear it every year at Passover how mom and dad lost you in Jerusalem when you were 12, and they found you at the temple, astonishing the rabbis. Yeah, you're, you're amazing. Like, imagine growing up with that. <laughs> Jesus, you weren't good at kickball. <laughs> you know, like, and all of a sudden, at 30 years old, Jesus goes around, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. Turns water into wine, casting out demons and all these things. And all of this buzz starts to go, and his brothers are like, what is he doing? 
And so when they say this, like they know the sentiment in Jerusalem. They know the Pharisees are trying to kill him. And they're, what they're doing is they, they are openly mocking their brother. Oh, Jesus, why don't you come with us to the festival? Why don't you show all of your disciples? Because everybody in Jerusalem is going to be there. It's going to be a massive party. Why don't you come and just do your work? Show them off. And like if you're trying to build your platform, if you're trying to get fame, why are you doing all this stuff in secret, Jesus? Come on, why don't you show off? Almost reminiscing of Satan's temptations. Jesus speaks into it. I mean, over and over and over, we see this deal, this reaction to who Jesus is. Like, you can talk to people today. If you were to go across the street, or when you go to P. Terry's today for lunch, talk to the waiter, talk to the waitress, talk to somebody across the thing and just say, hey, what are your thoughts about Jesus? I guarantee you they'll give you a totally different reaction if you said, hey, let's talk about LeBron James. People will always be like, I love Jesus. He's awesome. Some people are like, yeah, he, he might be a good teacher. He might be this. And some people are like, Christianity is oppressive, and they just want to kill anything associated with it. You can't encounter Jesus and not be affected. When we sing these songs, like, there's power in your name. Have you ever thought about this? Tell me another name that people swear by. Got one? Buddha! Well, I mean, what, what do people normally cry out when they stub their toe? <laughs> Careful. Right? Like, why do you do that? Is it just to be offensive? No, there's actually power in that name. It, it, like, you're expressing something. There's no other name in heaven where salvation can be found. There's power in the name of Jesus. You can't encounter Jesus and not be moved. You come here unbeknownst, maybe you come intentionally to want to encounter Jesus, maybe you just go to church, you are encountering Jesus. He is present. He is in our midst. This is his body. He's here. What are you going to do with him? What response are you going to give? Because here's the deal. Jesus is, and I'm not playing off of C.S. Lewis, Jesus is either who he said he is, or he's a crazy lunatic, or d demonically oppressed. Because no sane or moral man, C.S. Lewis would say, would say the things that Jesus said unless he is who he says he is. Because if he says, I'm the son of God, eat my flesh, drink my blood, all these types of things, if he's not who he says he is, he's crazy, run away. If Jesus isn't, in fact, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, he's the greatest con man in all of human history, and you're all being duped right now. So what are you going to do? And as we look at John chapter 7, we see Jesus constantly teaching and pushing and challenging people, almost getting into a sense like he's trying to pick a fight with them. He's starting to say like, hey, listen, if you want to know where I come from, right, you will know if what I say is of my own a desire, my own ideas, my own thoughts, or if it's from God, you have to desire to want to know God's will, to want to pursue God's will. And if you do, you will know that I was sent from God. And if you don't desire God's will, I get it. it whatever I say is not going to have any traction with you. In fact, it might even be offensive. 
He's, he's pushing on these things. And that's the thing about Jesus, right? It's not like so much of what Jesus does. It's not his acts that so much that like cause all of the issues. It's really what he says. Right? Like, like think about that. It's, it's what he says. Jesus in this passage is equating himself to the Father. Like, I am the Son of God. In fact, I am God. Like, I am the God man, God in the flesh. I am here. In fact, if you want to know him, you have to know me. And he goes on, started talking about this. Like, you are judging me by external preferences. You're, you're judging me by what you see on the outside, kind of like what Sprite would say, like image is nothing, right? Like what you see. But he goes, no, judge by a righteous judgment. And when he says righteous judgment, what he's actually saying is, look at the fruit. Look at what happens as a result of what I say. Look at the motive of my heart. Look at what's deep. Ask, why am I saying this? Why am I doing this? You were so mad at me when I healed a man on the Sabbath. You were mad at me and you judged me because I showed love and compassion and mercy to someone whom you excluded and outcasted. And maybe even if you gave him a shot, you still got mad because your religious observance was more important than compassion. Don't judge by the externals. Look at my heart. Look at the righteousness inside. Why? Can I, can, why when Jesus speaks hard truths to us, when he disciplines us, you have to know why. Everything that Jesus does, everything that God's doing in our hearts is to show us his love. Even if it's to call out sin, even if it's to convict, it's over and over, this is what he's doing doing because he wants us to wake up to be aware of who he is and where we are at and what we believe is going to quench our thirst and so he's making this statement that's rather offensive and this is this is still true today in the church it's beautiful but sobering if you will not have jesus as lord you will not have god as father But if, if you will not have Jesus as Lord, you cannot know God. Like you, you can say you think you know God, but really what you're saying is you know the God that you created in your own image. The only way to know God the Father is to know Jesus. And the only way to know Jesus is to know his heart. Thirst is everything. Jesus says what Jesus says because Luke 6.45 tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The wicked produce wicked. The good produce good. So when you hear Jesus speaking, it's an overflow of his heart. That's important. So every time Jesus says something, if it's a hard truth, or a great, encouraging, compassionate statement, 
It's a reflection of his heart. Last week, we looked at Ezekiel 47, specifically verse 9. It was that picture of a stream of water coming from the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, goes past the burnt offering altar. And in verse 9, it says that everywhere where the river went, there was life. Jesus is overflowing with the river of life. Overflowing. Everything he says, even if it's hard. Our culture does not like being confronted with truth. And it, that is bled into our lives. It is actually bled into our theology. God must not love me because I'm feeling guilty for sin or convicted of sin. God must not love me because I'm in a dry place. God must not love me because it isn't. God is just mean. God's oppressive. Hebrews 12, verse 5. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He punishes every son. He receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. In other words, he's saying like, be encouraged. <laughs> be encouraged. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? In fact, be nervous if you don't get disciplined. <laughs> like, if you don't ever feel that challenge, like God confronting the sinfulness inside of you and, and calling you out into a place of life and abundance, you should maybe get a little nervous on occasions, right? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers that disciplined us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of the spirits and live? Like, friends, listen, like, I need to speak in this because like our culture it's like, no, do not call out what my truth is. If you call out what my truth is, you are oppressing me. And you can't do that. But like, you know, calling out the truth in love is actually sometimes the most loving thing you can do for someone. Because they may be living their truth and they're heading quickly to the pit of hell. Oh, I don't want to offend. Like, if you don't do it, you actually have to ask yourself, am I actually being loving? Oh, it's so oppressive. And our culture is even pushing against parents and those who are guardians over children. Like, don't discipline your kids. If you discipline your kids, you're oppressing your kids and they cannot discover who they really are. Okay. Like he says here, like, we respect our fathers for disciplining us. We're growing up in a generation, in a time when children don't respect their parents. They just speak right back to them. Or maybe parents are afraid to discipline their kids because they want their kids to like them. But that just creates a broken and toxic relationship. Or maybe there's just abuse that has happened. So when we think about God speaking hard words, we go, how is this loving? Oh, we don't see it. But it is. This is why we need to understand his heart. Judge with righteous judgment. So how does Jesus show us in this passage that he loves us? Okay? Here we go. We need to understand what the Festival of Booths and Shelters is, okay? Hang with me. 
We need to understand what this is. The feast or the festival of booths, shelters, or tabernacles was one of the main three Jewish festivals that pilgrims were supposed to go to Jerusalem for, specifically if you lived within a 20-mile radius. This festival was the last one in their cycle, and it came after the harvest. It was loaded with symbolism and deep and profound meaning, as well as meeting practical needs. It was a time where they would remember their time in the wilderness to reflect on how God provided for them in the desert when they had no water, when they had no food, and how God led them. It was this moment where they would reflect that. And that's why they would build these tabernacles or these shelters. And it was supposed to be flimsy and all this kind of stuff to give us this idea that they were to be constantly on the move. It was a joyous celebration It was known as the season of our gladness. In fact, there was a saying that says this, he who has not seen the joy of the water drawing has not seen joy in his whole lifetime. I'm going to come back to that, but water and joy were connected. Water makes a way. Water is what makes a way to joy, to having our thirst quenched. But we have to settle If Jesus is who Jesus is, like, do we believe what he's saying? This festival took place in the fall, and at that time, Israel is typically in a period of drought. Their cisterns are running out of water. In fact, they're mostly out of water. The springs and streams were weak, just a faint little trickle. The hills were barren and parched, just like Austin. They knew that they needed the ground to be saturated with the fall and winter rains in order for the next season. So they were praying and they were actively remembering in faith and celebration when Moses went to God at Sinai. were like, these people are crying out to me. They're thirsty. I don't know what to do, God. You told me to lead them. There's no water. And God's like, go strike this rock. You strike that rock and water will flow out of it. And they remember that because they know that's a picture of the Messiah. So they're longing and and praying and rejoicing that God's going to send a Messiah who will again unleash these streams of living water from the temple into the whole world. Every day, the heart of this celebration was very interesting. In the morning, everybody would gather to the temple and they would wait. They would wait for the high priest and he would grab a golden pitcher. And he would then march out to the pool of Siloam and the crowd. You got to imagine, when I say crowd, I'm talking thousands, not just 20. Thousands of people would follow the high priest to the pool of Siloam, singing and chanting great psalms that would reflect the wilderness times. And they would be shaking specific branches with the beat of the music. And the priest would go into the pool, bring up water, walk back to the temple, go through the water gate, and then walk once around the altar of the burnt offering where where the atonement of sins is. He would walk up the stairs to the top with all the other priests, and they would pour out the water. And as they were doing that, they would rehearse Isaiah 12, 3. Oh, this is so beautiful. With joy, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Every day they would do this. 
And they would rehearse and think through Ezekiel 47, which was a picture, like we talked about last week, of the Holy Spirit coming when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on sons and daughters of God right at the end times, which is like still now. They would rehearse passages like Zechariah 14, 18, which would talk about the end of all things when water would flow out of the temple east and west, bringing life. They would rehearse Joel 3, which is another picture of the water, the streams coming from the house of God, full of joy, full of hope and expectation, rooted in the promise that at some point God will quench their spiritual thirst. But until then, they would come back and commemorate this. On the seventh day, the high priest would do something different. He would do the same thing, grab the pitcher, go to the pool, the crowd would follow, and he would come back. But now, he would walk around the altar seven times. And every time he would walk around the altar, they would blow the horns, symbolic of the walls of Jericho. And on the seventh time, another priest would join him with a pitcher of wine. And they would walk up to the top. Okay? You have to picture this is they would walk up to the top, one priest carrying the wine, the other one carrying the water. They rehearsed Isaiah 12, 3 from the wells, right? Out of salvation, you would draw up the wells of salvation. Like now, just as the high priest was slowly lifting the pitcher, the crowd would shout, higher, higher. Priest, a little bit higher. And the crowd would be like, higher. And it would just keep going back and forth until, like, the, the high priest can't get any higher. And all of this was done because it was considered to be the height of one's joy if they could see the high priest pouring out the water on the altar. If you're short and in the back, bad luck. Joy. Here we go. Verse 37. On that last and most important day, the seventh day, as the high priest is walking around the altar seven times, he walks up the steps, the crowd's shouting, Higher! Higher! Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Why are all of those people there? Because they're thirsty. They want something. That's why they're, they're Jewish. They're celebrating this. They're placing their faith and the hope and the promises. They're thirsty. And he's saying if anyone is thirsty, he's even talking to his enemies. Anyone, if anyone hears this, what you're seeing right here is me. I'm the one. This was not calculated. Jesus didn't go, oh, this is going to be amazing. On the seventh day when he goes up there, I'm going to bust in and be like, it's me. It was him. Like he, it, the word cried out was showing us that the living water was overflowing inside of him. He couldn't contain it and he had to shout it out. If you are thirsty, come and drink. 
Who's thirsty? Everyone. What's the prereq to come to Jesus? Thirst. Do you desire things? You looking for satisfaction, fulfillment, joy, wanting more, frustrated when you placed hope in something that was promised and find out that it was lacking. You're thirsty. You're thirsty. And Jesus is saying, come. But why? It's because he loves you. Come. Come to me. Drink of me. Let your soul drink in Jesus. This is, this is part of salvation, okay? John chapter 6, don't have time to get into it, but that was the, like the salvation picture. It was the Passover concept. The body and blood of Christ saves all this stuff. Here, this is the picture of the Holy Spirit. This is the picture of satisfaction. This is the picture of joy. And Jesus is saying to you, you were created for joy. You were created to have satisfaction and delight. If you are thirsty, and I know you are, come here. You come to me. In fact, that he said the word thirst tells us that this is about satisfaction, that this is about joy. According to scriptures, it will happen. Ezekiel 47, Zechariah 14, Joel 3, Psalm 63. Oh my goodness. Let's look. Can we pull up Psalm 63 for a moment? Sorry. A little lit up right now. Psalm 63. Nope. No, I have no power. Oh, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you. In a land that is dry, desolate, without water. Verse 2. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. This is beauty. Beholding the beauty and the majesticness of God, the love of God, I'm drinking in Jesus. My lips will glorify you. We glorify God by delighting in God. By coming to him to have your thirst quenched. Why do I glorify you with my lips? Because your faithful love is better than life. You will never know this unless you come to Jesus with your thirst. That's faith. That's what it means to believe on Jesus. I'm thirsty, God. I've seen it. I get it. I'm going to choose now to come to you and believe that you will truly satisfy. Because Jesus wants to tap a well in your heart. One that will never cease flowing with living water. 
And living water is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a picture of joy. And the Holy Spirit's passion is Romans 5, 5. God pours out his spirit, right, to show us the love. He poured out in our hearts the Holy Spirit, love. He wants us to root us in love, Ephesians 3, that we would know the height, the depth, the width, and the length of the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. We only can know that through the Holy Spirit. Think about this, Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Well, what's righteousness? I think most of the time we hear that, we think, I got to do good. I got to perform well. I got to perform. I got to thrive. I got to be a good Christian person. As if your righteousness will do anything for you. So what righteousness are you hungering for and thirsting for? Oh, we are justified because of the righteousness of Jesus. He says, I will take your life, and in exchange, I will give you my righteousness. You thirst and hunger after Jesus. Paul, Philippians 3, I considered everything a loss because it will never quench my thirst. It will never satisfy. I considered it all a loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. And he goes on to say, not to have a righteousness of my own but of one of him, of faith. So I, I know I went long. I want you to ask yourself this question. What will you do with Jesus? You have two options. That's it. And I want you to know this is the most important question you can ever answer in your life. This, this is the question of questions. Is he who he says he is? Or is he psychotic? And you might say he is who he says he is. You might believe in that. You might agree that Jesus is the son of God. But that doesn't mean you're going to believe on him. The demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But they don't act out in faith, live accordingly. Jesus says, if you believe, right, you drink. And what he's connecting faith and belief in this moment, this isn't just for unbelievers. This is actually for those who follow Jesus as well. Because let's just be honest, we will drink from the Jesus, and then we're like, I like this water a little bit better. I want a Coke. And we go there, and then we forget. What he's inviting you to, to connect your belief and trust, is simply this. Come. It's free. It's free. It's on his tab. Come. But it was at a great cost to him. But it was because of joy. Isaiah 55. If anyone is thirsty, look, I love this. Come, everyone who's thirsty, come to the water. Come without silver. Come without gold. Just, just come. Just come. 
drink. Can we all agree that everybody in this room is thirsty? Will you come to Jesus? If you never have, try it. Scripture's good with this. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just like how our brains are hardwired to release dopamine when we drink water, your soul will experience something you have never experienced in your life when you taste Jesus. Water makes a way. He loves you. Even if his love comes in difficulty and truth, sometimes that hurts. All I'm going to ask for you to do this as we close simply this. Choose. Will you bring your thirst to Jesus? And if you want to, like honestly, like come on up. Come on up. We'll pray for you. You can just spend time with the Lord up here. And and it's just an act of humility saying, God, I'm choosing. This is a symbolic act of me coming to you. And I asked the band just to play a little song, which they didn't know of till like five minutes before the service started. Thank you, Brandon. Waymaker. Water makes a way. Jesus is here. He is in our midst. He will heal. He will speak. He will shower you with, like, yes. Come. Come. It does you no good if you are thirsty and you see Jesus with a cup of water and you don't take it. And then you get mad. Why am I so thirsty? And sometimes we're like, come to me. Nope. You come. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I just ask God that you would minister to our hearts now. Lord, I pray that you would remove obstacles or things in our hearts that are distracting us, maybe are frustrating us in this moment. Maybe it's practical in the moment right now for things to come. Lord, I just pray. Lord, that we would hear your voice. We would feel your spirit. Give us the faith. God, stir up faith. Stir up love. Help us to confess and repent of the areas that we've went after, thinking that it would quench our thirst. Yeah, thirst is everything. Obey your thirst. Because the soul thirst inside of you longs to have it quenched with Jesus. Obey it. Jesus, I just pray and ask in your name that you would move in our midst. Amen.
want... Lord, I pray that you would encourage people now that maybe they were expecting some crazy emotional feeling right now. Like, oh, where are you? And didn't have that moment. Lord, I ask that you would embed the truth of how that river starts oftentimes as a trickle. It starts as a trickle and it grows. Lord, I thank you for revealing your heart. I, I thank you that you made a way for us to know the Father, to be saved. And yet you're so good that that wasn't, you, were, you, you loved us so much that that wasn't even enough. You wanted us to actually to be rooted in joy. So that way we don't look for it anywhere else, but right there with you. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us and that you would continue to root us in the love of Christ. And I also want to just extend to anybody here that two things, like if, if you want to say yes to Jesus, like you want to come to Jesus, and this is the first time, and you've never drank from his well, as it were, I want to be over here in the corner. I want, I want you to come to me and we can pray. Secondly, if what I shared earlier out of Isaiah 49 this morning was you and you feel like God has forgotten you or abandoned you, I would love to pray for you. And I'll be over here, and, and if need be, we'll have other folks come and pray too, but I want to encourage you to do that.